The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, We guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Welcome to the latest edition of 100, the Ed Gordon Podcast. Today, a conversation with journalist Michelle Miller, the co-host of CBS Saturday Morning. She's been with the network since 2004. Miller has written a memoir entitled Belonging. She says the book is one woman's search for herself. It explores her dealings with parental abandonment, racial identity, and America's reckoning with race. Michelle, before we get started, we should note you and I have known each other forever. Forever. Three forever decades at yeah, least. For a long time. For a long time. <laughs> so this brings me to the first question, which is interesting to me. Um, why now for the memoir? Quite frankly, because um, I was asked. Um, mm-hmm. And I was, my, my husband and friends of mine who know my story have been telling me to write a book for years. But it was through work. Uh, a story that I was asked to do um, for uh, well, four days after the George Floyd murder, encompassing all of the stories that I'd ever done on social justice and all of the movements, all of the, the incendiary episodes over the last 30 years. And there was a turn, a 15 second turn I made in that piece, directing back to myself on why racism had such an impact on me. And that turn was my origin story. Mm-hmm. And it, I think for folks who knew me, for folks who I think who thought they knew me, it floored them. It resonated with them. It opened up um, a side of me that I think gave them a level of appreciation. Oh, you know, wait, he, she's not like this. We mm-hmm. put her in a box mm-hmm. and maybe we shouldn't. And mm-hmm. 37 minutes after that piece aired, I got a call from a publisher at Har- HarperCollins saying, you have a book in you, which you consider writing it. 
Here's what's interesting. The book just very basic is a search for your birth mother and your identity, obviously, but it's also really, uh, I would suspect a real search for you. It's a search. It's a love letter to the people who made me, my father, my grandmother, the, the many women in my life who helped to raise me and who were that maternal figure to me over the course of my life in absence of my birth mother. And the question uh, it really isn't. A, the search came pretty fast. I mean, I was lucky in that. Um, and readers will discover, whoa, probably the easiest thing, the easiest search for an absent parent that had ever happened in the mm-hmm. history of searching. But um, it is the conversation after that in terms of how you as an individual change your lens, change your perspective, change your attitude toward who you are, how you want to be seen, how you see yourself. And I think for me, that sort of the, the I'm a very different person as a child, adolescent, when and then when I actually have a conversation with my mother than I am today. Mm-hmm. Uh, very different. I'm very different on how I see this. And that's okay. Um, but one thing that I think for a lot of people is is sort of figuring out like who I was. I knew I was a black kid. I I I just all of those things that we deal with as black people, uh, the nuances in our community, mm-hmm. the colorism, the um the 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 all of the all of the the shades of 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 uh of tropes and and shades of like who people think we are and how we view ourselves based on the mainstream all of that impacted me um but i and, you know i'm pretty i'm i'm pretty clear in terms of who i thought i was and who i am uh and and that was a gift because of my father and my grandmother mm-hmm. and they were extremely proud and extremely fierce about who they were, where they came from, and what they hoped to contribute to the world. I want to get into them in a second, but I do want to ask you the idea of, did you ever, do you ever, even still, live with the what ifs? What if my mom had stayed? What if I had known her growing up? Or do you just say, this is who I am now, based on the road you travel? So as a child, I think the what ifs, I wanted to know the 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 what is right i wanted to know who she was why she left the answers um and certainly i wanted to have a mother i don't know if you know the person that she was was the mother i needed and mm. in fact she told me she said michelle if i had raised you you would not be the woman you are your grandmother did a hell of a job mm-hmm. um and I sort of think about that a lot because I I don't know if I would, I don't, I don't know if I would be the same person. You know, that's the question, really, mm-hmm. that the nature versus nurture. It's the question that we've been throwing out there for at least a century. Um and certainly within the communities of 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 uh that, that we cover. In, in our profession, we've seen that question over and over again. Um, 
my strength lies in the people who surrounded me and, and nurtured me. Yes, I have gumption. Yes, I am like this adventurer. Yes, all of these things. I don't know how, you know, I would be who I am without them. But I, I didn't, after knowing her, I'd never, what if. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just, can we just like, for me, it's the acknowledgement phase. And I think you can understand this. Acknowledgement from her is what I was looking for. Mm-hmm. Tell the world that you had a child. Um, and when she couldn't do that, it angered me. And um, and I think it angered me based on all the others' refusal to acknowledge me in the greater sense of community. My community has not been fully acknowledged. Black people have not been fully acknowledged. And that is all we are asking for as a people, to be acknowledged for our contributions to this country, to be acknowledged for the great history that we have, to be acknowledged for the people and human beings that we are. That is what we are seeking when we are talking about a number of different things that are you know, out there and are part of the news uh, cycle right now. Here's what's interesting, I think, in in your story. It tells the story of all of us, if we're honest. You know, when you peek behind the family curtain of many people, I'd even venture to say most people. Most it people. Isn't, it, it isn't the fun with Dick and Jane that we're taught in elementary school, right? It's It's nuanced. It's layered. It's messy at times. It's all of those things. Um, and when you look at your parents for who they are as human beings versus parents, uh, particularly as you get older, I hope people can find a way to understand and nuance that they're they're human and frail and all of those things. Um, when you look at you know your dad, for instance, who is beloved by you, understandably, um, you are the product of an extramarital affair. M- many people find these things. Did you have to reconcile, um, you know, what that was? It takes you know from from being. A, a hero to most of us, our parents, to when you start to see the flawed nature of all of us being human. How did how did so, you have to deal with that? I always saw my dad's flaws. Mm. It wasn't like so. I never saw him with these rose colored glasses because he never hid any of that from me. If mm-hmm. that sounds strange and unusual, he lived because I was this. Um, at first, certainly. I wasn't like thrown out or cast into the social circles that that he um, engaged in. But but it was pretty clear to me that my situation was different from everybody else's, even the folks in my neighborhood. So I'm from South Central Los Angeles. Uh, My community was like I didn't even know I was from South Central because the South Central that everybody talked about had a very there was a very narrow Mm -hmm. edge to it. And I always tell people that's not the vast. That, I mean, yeah, there are pockets of poverty and there are pockets of crime and there are pockets. But I lived in a middle class neighborhood where I had a white um, uh, my, my 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 grandmother's best friend was next door to her. She was a they were a white elderly couple. And the other best friend was across the street. They were a Creole uh, family and the Tolson. So the homes is the Tolson's, the Cannons. Like it was like this really wonderful community of people. And the the, the sense that, you know, I was different was clear, but it wasn't ever um, 
it, it just was. That's just who I was. So, you know, it might have been more difficult for me to explain it to my friends. Like they were probably they a lot of times people don't ask the questions once you the the first. Well, where's your mom? Well, I really don't know. Mm-hmm. Why don't you know? Well, I never grew up with her. Well, why don't you grow up with her? Because my mother and father weren't married. Um, and her fan, you know, it like there were there was like a point at which I could no longer explain. Mm-hmm. And then it just becomes uncomfortable to have that conversation unless you're like probing. Right, right. You talk about the the kind of nuances and layers, the the peeling of the onion of just being black, right? In in this country, the colorism with not, you know. It's it's strange sometimes outwardly looking in because we all face certain things. There are certain commonalities to just being black. Um, but those of us in the community understand it's class, it's color, it's all of those kinds of things. As you grew up, did you did you feel because of your complexion? Um, did you feel the need to prove blackness in quote? I put that in quotes. Mm-hmm. I'm sure I did. I still, you know, um, I did, uh, and I I remember, so as a child, I don't remember, like, just, I was very small and withdrawn as a kid, as I recall. I mean, up until the age of five, I was like, ah, because I was cute, (laughs) right? And then you start to grow into that awkwardness as an elementary schooler, and I sort of drew in. And, um, And because I was you know, at a new school and I really didn't know anybody. I didn't have like a wealth of friends. I remember a lot of times being um, by myself at my elementary school mm-hmm. um, and just engaging with the teachers. Like I had great relationships with teachers. One of my favorite teachers was Mrs. Bennett. Ran into her on a flight some 20 years later and had a wonderful conversation about, you know, me being a child and how she saw me and she saw me in such a beautiful way because my grandmother was such a part of my education. And as a teacher, my grandmother, I'm sure, like made sure that I was getting the best. But I, I rem- it, it was like through friends, like I mentioned a woman named Michelle Woods, who like I didn't have to be anything but me by the fifth grade. We were both bust out to, you know, these these white neighborhoods to go to school and she was so proud and never like never held her head down because of anything and so i emulated her and she introduced me to you know so much in terms of cultural norms as a young black kid and so like then i got excited and then i started going to the national medical association with my father and there was this whole other world of you know, blackness. And so I was like really engaged then. So then it was like, you start to say, okay, we're all kinds of people and they're all kinds of situations. We aren't this one thing. And that's what I gained my strength and pride in. And then when I got to, but you're still being like sort of beaten into this, like as a whole, you know, the media kind of plays a trick on you, right? Or I did. You don't see yourselves in movies or in the pages of magazines and just in the the way I was seeing myself through all these other 
these other spheres. And, um, and, and it was that incident in the, my ninth grade year that I just kind of, that's when I just said, um, enough, I'm going to be very clear about who I am because I'm never going to be blindsided by an assumption. Mm-hmm. So I was a chubby kid in eighth grade, summer of eighth grade. I went to, a uh, a weight loss camp and I lost a lot of weight and I was fit and I gained all this confidence and I went to the ninth grade. So I was an excellent student. I had that down. I, you know, had my set of friends that had that down, but I never, I always liked a boy in, um, in, in junior high. And there was this one boy who liked me and I was, Oh, he's cute. And he would ask me to do all these things with him in class. And so I did. And then one day, I don't know, do you, Ed, do you know, Otis Livingston? Mm-hmm. Otis Livingston and I grew up together in LA. He came up to me in the class. So Otis, now I work with in the same building, same profession. He's a sportscaster for WCBS. And um, he then was still this and just crazy, like articulately uh, uh, engrossing uh, athletic kid and brilliant. We were a super brilliant kid. And they were in a debate about race, he and another guy. And they said, let's let's ask Michelle. She's black. And this this guy heard that. And like, have you ever been in a situation where you feel all of the air sucked out of the room? (laughs) Like, did you I felt the tension in his body. It went cold. Mm -hmm. And. I looked over at him and his eyes were like this. And he said, you're black. And I, and I knew in that moment, one, I had to be very clear. Two, this was going to be the defining point. Three, his, his, he is going to treat me differently, mm-hmm. but that doesn't matter. That's on him. And like saying that to myself in a split second. And I looked at him and I said, of course I am. What did you think I was? And from that day forward, he treated me like a pariah. He did not speak to me. He did not look at me. And anytime I was in his presence, like, because we have mutual friends, he just, and and I just, I was bewildered. I was like, oh, this is the illogic of racism. Mm -hmm. Makes Mm -hmm. no sense whatsoever. And that was like kind of like another that was another book into the 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 I want to call it to the lesson of uh, and the in the loss of innocence that you have as a kid. But I lost that that innocence. I never had like that because like the world was like so cut and dry to me so early on. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you the cliche question that uh, many people ask authors, but I think in memoirs, it's it's more appropriate. Um, did you find healing in this? Did you, did you, um, explore and find things you didn't know were in you? Well, that is the beauty of writing a book with someone as a journalist. I'm, I'm so used to talking to other people about Mm -hmm. their lives. So like looking inward, isn't necessarily something that we're trained to do. And so having this opportunity with Rosemary Robotham, who has written books, um, uh, she asked me questions. I was like, Rosemary, why do you need to know this? Mm-hmm. She's like, cause I need to peel that. I need to kind of, that little threads hanging out. 
And I, I don't want to talk about that. Or maybe I don't remember that. Or just like, and it's just like, so it, she really was able to pull from me stories of interest that maybe I didn't think were that interesting that were cosmically, cosmically intertwined with not only how I think, how I learn, and then also, you know, how I feel. And um, therapy, was this book therapy? I don't know. I think I'm relatively numb to a lot of things. Everything but a good movie or, or a television show or book. <laughs> mm-hmm. I cry like a baby to those. But um, I have never been really good at looking inside and sort of peeling away. Um, I'm not that I don't need it. I'm sure I need it, but uh the book is definitely an exhale. I've said what I wanted to say. I've uh written about what I wanted to write about. And I was having this conversation with myself in the shower. And I said, you know, um, our privacy, because I'm, I'm, I'm really vulnerable in this book and I'm putting a lot out there, mm-hmm. but you know what? I am sharing exactly what I want to share and I'm not going to share anything more. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking like, what do people ask you this, that, or and I was like, you know, you know, I have a right to hold back. Right. Um, and I have a right to, to explore. So I think all of those were questions that Rosemarie captured. And, um, you know, I always say, uh, you know, the, the, the most frustrating part of this book is my attempt to write it by myself. Mm-hmm. Those first like five months that I sat down and I got through about 60 or 70 pages and then I just, I could not, it was like writer's, writer's block. And a friend uh, tipped me off to Rosemarie. And the minute she came on board, it was like a completely different scenario. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I think many of us who tell stories um, and who delve into the lives of others um, are, are very closed when it comes to ourselves. I, I know I'm very you very are private. You know, Ed, yes. I would love to dig into you one I'm day. Very private. Um, and I don't know, you know, it's interesting. Um, and, and I wonder often you look at entertainers or those of us who, you know, are in front of the camera and the like. And I I find that, you know, m- many of those same people who put themselves out publicly um are very, very private. Yeah. And it's it's just interesting. Let's let's turn to your day job. Yay. The news business, if you I will. love my day job. <laughs> can you tell? I can tell. Uh, you've been at CBS since 2004. I started freelancing at CBS the minute I set foot in uh, New York. And even before, because I worked, I, I sub-anchored mm-hmm. um, for Jackie Reed um, in the summer of 2003 for the BT Nightly News, mm-hmm. which was produced by CBS Newspack. And so that was a lovely, like, that's kind of like one of the ways that I, I was able to work my way into CBS because I came to CBS through the back door. I started mm-hmm. as a freelancer on Up to the Minute, which was their overnight show. I started working as a freelancer for their Saturday and Sunday weekend edition, uh, which was amazing. An amazing group of people worked there. And um, yeah, so that's how I came in. 
I think it's interesting because those that don't know, for as much as this business of news has changed, you see far more people of color on uh, on the air now, and we're starting to see executives get back into because there was a wave in the late 60s, early 70s of black executives, and then they went away, and then they went away for decades. We're starting to see that change. But um, it has for many years been a male, white, dominated uh, industry. And, you know, it's interesting to hear some of the stories that any of us have faced. Then share the Minneapolis one. I was a student at Howard University uh, and interns. You, you get a chance in the college to interview with newspapers. And um, I remember there was this gentleman was such a nice guy. He he said, you're a broadcast journalism major. Why should we hire you? We're print. And I said, because I'm a journalist. Why wouldn't you want to train the best journalist? There's no there's no uh, certainty that I'm going to come work in Minneapolis for the Star Tribune. I said, but you want to have an impact on me so that I can have an impact on the profession. And he was so blown away by like my gumption that he hired me. And I went to the Star Tribune right after. Literally, I landed at JFK for my semester abroad in Kenya and Tanzania, flew, flew, flew directly to Minneapolis, which is a very, it's a lovely place with wonderful people, but it's 95 at the time was, was majority uh, white city. And um, it uh, was an engaging place and the people were so welcoming to these minority interns. They really just were, were so wonderful to us, um, both professionally and, and, and the folks um, who like housed us and, 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 you know, made sure that we felt mm -hmm. at home. But um, one, one of the initial weeks we were there, uh, there was a, a staff meeting uh, where one of the high ups uh, address these minority students. And he addressed the entire, like portions of the reporting and editing staff as well. And he said, uh, I just want you to, after giving a wonderful presentation, the end he footnoted it with, I just want to make sure you understand that you have every opportunity to be great journalists, but you must put your blackness aside and just be a great journalist not a great black journalist. And I was like, that's interesting how he phrased it like that, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and I just, I, and, and, and then it was like, he kept talking. I said, wait a minute. And he, he said, yes, ma'am. I said, you know, I, I just, I can't, I, I, I don't know how to take that because I wasn't born you know, an eight pound, nine ounce journalist. I was born a black woman, a black child. Um, and, and that counts. And, and I don't know how to like erase mm -hmm. myself. And then I looked at him I, and I said, has anybody ever told you you had to place your white maleness aside? And his, it was like an epiphany and an embarrassment all at the same time. And I didn't mean to embarrass him, but that was, I, I think there was a bit of ire in me that just kind of said, wait a minute, here's my opportunity. And what do I have to lose? 
Um, and, and what was so I, I, I started to get I was like, oh, shucks. And I put my foot in my mouth. And then after the meeting, there were all of my the fellow, you know, the, my mentors in the newsroom, white reporters, men, women. Um, there were so few black editors and um, and reporters that they were they they said, Michelle, thank you for speaking truth to power. There are so many other things we'd love to address with him that he isn't aware of. But they didn't use the term unconscious bias, but that's no. what they were saying. They were saying yes on race and yes on some other things. Thank you for opening the door. And I was like, whoa, wait, there are other things. Yeah. And it opened my mind a little bit more to maybe some of the things that they were talking about that they wanted to resonate in the mind of their employer as well. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, white seems to be the default position for the many. normal. It's like the normalization of whiteness um, and the normalization of, of nuclear family when uh, across the globe, a, a, a family doesn't look like a mom and a yeah. dad. And it looks like a village or it looks like what family means to people is it's 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 defined differently it's like a family's not a family without the grandparents yeah you know a family's not the family without the cousins and the aunts but but all of that to say it's like i think that that for for a lot of people and this is where where our white brothers and sisters can help in understanding is that 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 the whiteness is normalized and everything else is not normal. Yeah, I had the same I had the same incident when I did the interview with OJ. Many of the press kept saying, "Well, how can a black reporter be fair in talking to OJ Simpson, a black man accused of?" And I said, "Well, do you ever ask that of a white reporter who talks to a white person who's alleged to have Every killed day. someone?" I said, "You never bring that up." So it's 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 interesting. It's always a default position for them. Before I let you go, let's talk about the thing that you and I are working on together. And that is a new joint venture between CBS News and uh, Black Entertainment Television, BET, a new news magazine, America in Black. Talk to me about um, what you think about it and, and what you're doing, because we should note, Michelle, and I'm, I'm squishing two questions together here, but the the news industry that you and I walked into X number of years ago has changed tremendously. We are in a different time and place. Stories are stories, but what is deemed news today is far mm -hmm. different than it was when we started. It's a much wider lens, right? It's like we look at all sorts of stories that, um, I mean, there's so many more communities that are being covered, so many more uh, topics that are being explored. It's it's a wonderful thing. Um, I am so first of all what what is so interesting is that the BET that we are seeing emerge today is much like the BET that initiated in the early 90s when you were a part of it because there was such a the, the newscast and and the interview style that I remember was defined in getting the, to the nitty gritty and we, I, I just, I still to this day think that the BET Nightly News is one of the best news programs. I came back from hosting that one show, sitting next to my co-anchor and him saying, whispering to my, 
I saw you last night. And I said, will you see me on, on BET? And he was a Norwegian American in New Orleans. I said, you watch BET? He said, it's a great show. I mean, you know, I mean, yes, we know these things. And so like the fact that they're embracing again, hard news, hard issues, and the glory of what is in the Black community that is, by the way, impacting all of America is awesome. Awesome. Um, I, I always, I'm teasing all of the stories that have aired and, and that are coming up because I've covered them all, a Crown Act I covered, that's coming up next month or this month. Uh, wait, on Sunday, right? Mm-hmm. Coming up on Sunday, uh, we just covered uh, the AP history in high school issue, I'm covering that. Um, but my story is, uh, and it hasn't, te- I don't know if I can technically talk about it yet because I haven't actually started filming <laughs> it, you know, I mean, I yeah. pitched it, so I don't know where I stand on that, but it's something really exciting. I have engaged because I think it's important for us to tell the whole story because it's about an artist who is like blown up in an era when black art is not not being appropriated, it is being recognized in and of itself and is also, he is taking it upon himself to help nurture the next generation of artists. And he's doing it in a place I think we need to go take pay a visit to. So I'll leave it at that. Well, we look forward to it. We should note that American Black will air monthly uh, every first Sunday of the month. And we should note that the book Belonging will drop, as we like to say, March 14th. You can pre-order it now wherever books are sold. Congratulations to you, young lady. Thank you, my friend. Again, Michelle's book Belonging comes out March 14th. 100 is produced by Ed Gordon Media and distributed by iHeartMedia. Carol Johnson Green and Cherie Weldon are our bookers. Our editor is Lance Patton. Gerald Albright composed and performed our theme. Please join me on Twitter and Instagram at Ed L. Gordon and on Facebook at Ed Gordon Media. Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. We'll be right back. 
We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action, and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. 